just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does the short season do to the variability of stats? I'll ask Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 31st. It's show number 21 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with a favorite guest, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM, discussing some early season takeaways, including stat volatility. And we'll talk about some DFS. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including returns to action by Nick Markakis and Mike Moustakis, as well as a bullpen mess in Pittsburgh, and an opportunity for Daniel Ponce de Leon in St. Louis. And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League, including the fallout from injuries to Justin Verlander, Corey Kluber, and Ken Giles. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in Hay Taxi. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at another possible source of fantasy help on those expanded rosters. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about some interesting ideas from the master. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The first week is in the books. We gotta talk some baseball. Now, before we get a rolling, I wanted to give you a heads up about last week's show. We ran into a technical glitch that kept the July 24th HQ Radio podcast from propagating on some podcatcher software. Thanks to Baseball HQ tech master Mike Krebs, we fixed the problem and the show made it to all the podcatchers out there. If you didn't download the show directly and didn't see it in your podcatcher, well, you should check it out. Alex Chamberlain was a great guest talking about the past, present, and future of ERA estimators and the ongoing effort to understand and use the latest advanced pitcher metrics. On to the first inning of this Friday Full Edition. It's part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola, a favorite guest from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and SiriusXM. Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. Let's talk some ball. Yeah, because the last time we spoke, uh, there was no ball. We were just hoping there would be at some point, and now here it is. Uh, maybe before we start talking about fantasy baseball, I'm just curious uh, of your thoughts through the first 10 days or whatever it's been about that. Uh, you know, I t- take every day as it comes. Uh, there's, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some of the issues going on with COVID-19, but I'm just, it's weird. The whole The whole playoff expansion thing, Half my Twitter feed is all up in arms. It, it dilutes baseball. And maybe you feel that way, and that's fine. I mean, it's – but I, I'm – I'm for the moment, I love the games. I love watching the games. I love thinking along with the games. 
um, living vicariously. So, you know, why play 162 if 16 teams make the playoffs? Well, because that's 162 times they get to watch baseball. So, yeah. if it, you know, I mean, if if you the only reason you watch baseball is to crown a champion, and if you feel the champion's diluted because 16 teams made the playoffs, I mean, that's your prerogative. But I don't think that you love baseball. You know, I mean, maybe you like the moment, you like the, the watching games that mean something, and I, I do too. But to me, it doesn't detract from the season. So I love watching the games. I love trying to figure out what the pitches are going to throw, uh, you know, strategy, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm less inclined. You know, I, I just take it day by day. And every every day, you know, earlier this week, a little scary, wasn't sure if there'd be ball on, but turned out that there was. And hopefully going forward, uh, things will straighten out and they'll be able to continue. And well, most of my reaction to the playoff structure was that I thought it was a little disappointing from, uh, because, uh, I have the fantasy interest of course at heart, but I also thought it was just a little disappointing that if they were going to set up such a long and drawn out uh, playoff with extra rounds and extra series and all that kind of stuff that they could have easily made those into re regular season games and carried on a couple of extra weeks and maybe given all the teams an extra five Here's or 10 the games. Deal, though. They're not, the, 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 the playoff timing is the same. The world series is still scheduled for the same time that it was previously. They're condensing it. And with the, with the initial round all being at the better team's place, there's no travel. So they did not alter, and, and because they're using tiebreakers, uh, not playing games, they can start right away. So they're not, it's not as if they're going into November with the World Series. The World Series is for the same seven days it was previous. So I agree, um, but uh, that, I mean, I don't, I don't agree. With, I mean, I think they could have extended it if they wanted to play more games, but this isn't the, you know this isn't a this isn't an argument for it unfortunately well and that wasn't the argument i was making what i was saying was if you've got 16 teams in the playoffs instead of 6 there's got to be some playoff rounds in there that could have been eliminated if they'd have stuck with 6 or even gone to 4 and they could have had whatever time is devoted to those first couple of rounds of playoffs could have been devoted to extending the regular season just with fewer playoff teams then well, again, though, they would have – well, you, what you could have done is you could have eliminated the play-in games, 163, 164, if necessary, and extended the season those two days. But the rest is just – it's fitting in the same – it's fitting in the same uh, uh, blueprint. So, um, yeah, they could have, if they wanted to, added two or three more games. They couldn't have added a week more games. Well, here's where you're losing me because it seems to me that if you've got 16 teams in the playoffs, then you need three rounds to get through them all, right? You need three that... games. You need an extra three games, and two of those three games are played are uh, are, are are will be played when they the, the schedule's off for the play-in games. They wait before they start the playoffs in case they're the tie-breaking games. So you, if you if you did it, so you didn't need those tie-breaking games then you, you could have extended the this, this season three games. That's all you could have extended it. The, uh, the, the blueprint is almost the same. They're squeezing in one more series. And, I mean, because 16 down to uh, – and plus the, the, the one-day wild card game is the third game. So the three extra days they need are the two play-in games that they don't need anymore and the one-day wild card game. So that's where the extra three-game series is coming into play. 
So the, after that, the blueprint is the same. The, bull, the blueprint after the wild card game is the exact same as it was. So how many teams did you end up with this year? Um, I think I'm up to 10 or 12. How does that compare with past years? It's fewer because I'm not playing, uh, I'm not doing as many of the NFBC as I've done in, in, in the past. And it's actually a, um, a couple of the, of the staff leagues that normally play didn't play. So it's, it's, it's probably five or six fewer. And I may have picked up, I picked up at least one, maybe two. Uh, there were some charity type leagues that were formed during the delay that, uh, you know, the entropy goes to some charities. So I think I picked up one, maybe two of those. So what was the split between uh, March teams and July teams? I only did, let's see, three July teams, maybe, maybe four. So the majority were, and some of the, some of the March teams were NFBC that didn't play. So we, you know, lost a few leagues and I didn't replace all of those. So I think I think I did maybe four March sorry July drafts, and the rest were uh, back in March and in one case last November with the XFL. So when you did draft in July and uh, not that many teams, but you still did uh, some July drafting, how did you adapt your strategies to account for what you knew was going to be a shorter season? Although at some points we didn't know exactly how short we knew it was going to be way shorter than 162. What did you do to, to your strategy for drafting? If anything, I didn't do a lot just because a couple of the moves that I would have done were part of my general strategy. Anyway, one of them being don't, don't invest heavily in saves. Uh, the other is, uh, I mean, I, I it wasn't so much a strategy, but I was it was I was able to. We've talked before how I'm not against taking pitching early, but I don't want to force it. Um, if a pitcher's there that I like at the spot, I'll take him. But I'm not. I, I have to get two pitchers by the end of this round or or, or whatever. Um, but it worked out such that other people were waiting on pitching so that. I was able to get, I say able to get, in two cases it was Justin Verlander, but I got a, an ace early just because of, of my, my you know, this I like this pitcher at this spot, so I'll take him. So I didn't adjust enough, much, but other people's adjustments sort of led to my teams being a little bit different. And so far we're, what, about seven games in or so. How did uh, How are you doing with your March teams? Uh, they're they're doing fine. I mean, at this point, we're a little bit lucky as far as injuries and or 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 absences. I've got a I got one team that I have a few a few Marlins on with John Birdie and Brian Anderson and Corey Dickerson, who happen to be three guys that I liked a little bit and I like some of their pitching. So that's going to take a little bit, but eventually that'll catch up. And the uh, knock on wood, some of those games get made up. There's no way they can make up a full week, I don't think. But uh, hopefully the, the, the Marlins and the Phillies and the Nationals this coming weekend will be able to make up some of the, their lost games. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the hope anyway. But, um, you know, it's still it's, – it's, 
you know, it's cliche. Don't look at don't look at live scoring. Don't, don't look at the standings. I've had to just because when you do fab, you know, you you need you look. But I don't. I, I am at the point now where I don't get obsessed over even if the season is shorter. I'm not obsessed over what's going on in the numbers just yet. How about your July teams? How are you doing with them? Everything's fine. Yeah, it's 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 pretty much everything's you know. Again, at this point, it's 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 more injuries. I did I did allude to getting Justin Verlander on two of those teams. So that again, that hasn't caught up yet. But over time, more than likely, that'll catch up to me. Not getting the horse, your first run horse. You know, maybe maybe um, maybe the pitching still makes up, but the team, at least if Verlander did what I expected him to do, won't be as good. I'm not giving up on him. Of you know, of course, you got to work a little harder. And if I'm gonna if I'm gonna miss an ace pitcher, or I'm gonna miss an ace hitter. I feel I have a better chance to stay competitive, missing the ace pitcher just because you still can manage the pitching. So you know, again, not 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 giving up um, makes that makes the road. It, it wasn't in one of the overall competitions, so you know, it just makes have to grind a little bit harder without without my ace. So we mentioned uh, a moment ago it's early into the season. Uh, from a fantasy perspective, Todd, what have been your most important takeaways about what has happened so far? Uh, just, yeah, be happy, happy when your team plays because it may not play tomorrow. Um, as far as, you know, it, I think it's, it's kind of nothing different than what I anticipated going in in that you just, you just, there's no margin of error you have to make sure that you get complete lineups you have to you have to really play the the game about this guy's got five games this guy's got six this guy's got seven you need all the at-bats innings pitched that you can muster um i think some of the other things that we expected the saves are getting spread around and and things of that nature are, are happening we're starting to get some data on the uh, on the you know the juice ball the home runs early on it sure looks like it's not a whole lot different than last year and we we know you will know after two or three weeks what the what the home run rates will be so it's certainly looking like either whether it's the weather at this point or not who's to say but uh the ball's flying and that's uh that's it's something to keep in mind as far as managing categories i've always thought that juice ball or whatever the case might be when home runs rise in this way that it's good news for people who didn't invest a lot in power hitters because there's going to be more like there were a few years ago Justin Smokes and that kind of sort of 18 to 20 guy who leaps up to 30 because he's benefiting more from the extra 10 feet than Giancarlo Stanton is you know it's, for him it's 480 or 490 but for Justin Smoke it's 395 and a, and a warning track or 405 and a home run so I think that that happens but there's also park effects I know you talked a lot in the pre-July season in your analyses uh, in various places, especially at Rotowire, talking about how important it was to understand the strengths of schedule because there's so many park effects. And we won't need to go into that, but I'm wondering how did you respond as an analyst to the <laughs> sudden move of Toronto moving its home games first to Washington for whatever uh, short-term reason, and then they're going to play most of the bulk of their games in uh, Buffalo. Uh, how do you manage that? Yeah, they're not going to play in Buffalo till August 10th. Whether it's whether it's the lighting or getting Statcast installed, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I don't know exactly the reason. Yeah, it was. It would have been a lot easier if they just did the 
the Baltimore, the Pittsburgh plan because we knew what to plug in. But the problem is just it's twofold. We we don't know Buffalo's park effect. We know what it was, but park fa- park factors are relative to the other parks that are in that, that are played. You know, the, the so AAA parks, international league parks in this case. So even though in a vacuum, the the Buffalo parks were very close to to Toronto's. You can't say that it plays the same just because they're compared. The, the denominators are different. They're compared. Um, so then it's just more intuitive, and you look at the dimensions, and it looks fairly hitter-friendly. But the word is, the narrative is, there's a lake effect coming in off Lake Erie and Buffalo. So that's what kept the run scoring down. To answer your question, and then, well, then, then well, I'll, I'll answer in a moment. Then the whole, as you alluded to, we're not, they're not playing. They're, they got home games in Washington. They got home games here. They got home games there. So, and who's to say that doesn't just switch up on the fly? The end of the day, I just left it at Toronto's. After switching to Baltimore, after switching to Pittsburgh, after switching other teams because I use composite park effects, um, I just left it at Toronto just because I think at the end of the day, Buffalo's Park will play fairly close to Toronto's. And even though I just mentioned you can't make that direct comparison, and we don't know all the away game, all the home games are going to be played in other areas. So it's it's a it's a guess and. As much effort as I put in, and, and I believe it's necessary, the, the bottom line is in, in 30 games at home and for every, everybody's you know home parks, noise noise is just going to blow away the any park factor adjustments. I think you need to make the adjustments, but at the end of this day, some say, well, you were wrong about this park. You know, in 30 games, you can't be wrong or right. So I think you need to make the adjustments, but uh, at the end of the day, noise is just going to it's just going to blow everything away. A lot of talk before the season started about how teams might run their pitching differently because of the oversized rosters. You got more arms mm-hmm. in the bullpen, that kind of thing. And especially there was the possibility of more teams opting for uh, using openers and then those bulk guy type of arrangements because uh, pitchers weren't stretched out enough, especially in the early going. What have you noticed so far and what do you expect? Yeah, I wish I was more vocal about this preseason because I, I, I said it on the radio a couple times, and I I don't want to say much to do about nothing, but I thought that there was a huge overreaction to the whole you know strategy planning is in, as far as uh, pitchers not going deep. Pitchers are doing what they're supposed to do. Maybe after the, the, their first outing, maybe it was three or four truncated outing. But we're now at the point where if a pitcher's good, he's going to go five to six or, you know, really good, going to go six to seven. I don't think there's going to be, you know, I don't think it's any different than it would have been in 162 games. There's just not a lot of good pitchers out there. So this was happening anyway. I think, think people thinking there were going to be more uh, pitchers not going deep or getting pulled or something like that. I don't think that that's actually the case. Maybe a few more. Part of it is we're just one, we're barely over one cycle through rotations. So we have, I, I, you know, I don't think we can make a definitive, uh, just not gesture, a definitive call either way yet. Cause some of the pitchers that were shortened early, we'll see what happens in our next one. Uh, at least when we're speaking, uh, even with schedule mess ups, we're just now starting to cycle through rotations twice. But um, I think it's one of the reasons why, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, more more convicted to take pitching early when it was there is because I didn't think there would be that much of a – I thought the guys at the top especially would get theirs. 
And um, so, I, you know, it could end up being wrong. We'll see. But I think there was an overreaction to the entire uh, pitching's just going to be nuts if no one's going to go more than four innings. I didn't think four innings either, but I, I thought especially as teams started getting towards the backs of their rotations, we might start seeing more inventiveness because of the extra arms that were available. Haven't seen it so far, so maybe they're just going to play it fairly well, straight. And, the extra uh, arms aren't very good. Through. <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's also true. I'm yeah. not kidding. I mean, I'm, I'm saying I know it's, you know, yes, it's, it, yes, I'm a, I'm a riot. It's funny, but it's also true. <laughs> They're not very good. Except this, this kid from double A or single A last night that comes up with Houston and just starts mowing him down and then mowing Dodgers down. That was kind of, fun. that's why, that's what I was talking earlier. That's, that's, I love baseball. I love watching a guy that's never pitched above, above single A come up and just strike out the Dodgers. Not, you know, nothing against the Dodgers, but just, you know, that sort of thing. And they are supposed to be a good hitting team. It's not like he was knocking them down uh, yeah. the Marlins or anything. Uh, for Roto Leagues using standard categories, Todd, it looks like stolen bases could be a real wild card in mm. the important season. Uh, what are the ramifications for stolen bases, do you think? Yeah, I think that you, 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 don't, you don't need to overdo the category. I think that that uh, we 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 don't know yet, but if if any of the categories slow down even more, it could be steals because steals, as we've talked about, it's it, it's sure there's skill, but there's also like want to, there's also desire and need, et cetera. And we'll see we'll see how many of these players toward the end of the season are going to continue to want to run. I think Whit, I, I don't want to call. I mean, I thought that maybe I was wrong, but there was a quote by Whit Merrifield that that led me to believe that he may not be interested in running anymore, which is interesting because he stopped running towards the end of last year. So if more, if more players that you're counting on for steals just don't want to run, where they don't want to get hurt in a short season or it's just not worth it in this season, I think that's going to be interesting. I mean, they're going to be guys like, like Alberto Mond- Alberto Mondesi, who just, that's his game. He's just going to, if he gets on, he's going to start getting on, but if he gets on, he'll continue to run. Um, but I think you just, you, you want to aim for the middle of the pack and manage the categories. Look to pick up a guy that'll get look look for, you know, it was only two months, but John Birdie stole I think seventeen bases the last two months of the year. I know we only have a two month season, but there'll be somebody who steals eight or nine bases in September. So you want to be in the middle of the pack, and then be the guy that gets the 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 emerging John Birdie type. In a well, geez, it's only another month from now, you know, in September. Tommy Pham, of course, already with four, so he's well on his way. I know a lot of people are wishing they'd signed him, and those who did uh, draft him, I should say, uh, those who did are, are thinking they're in pretty good shape. He's also having a slow start with the bat other than the stolen bases, right. so there is that. Um, how can owners manage categories favorably given the short season uh, between saves, wins, um, uh, stolen bases I mentioned, Let's start with this, the uh, the saves. How are you managing your fantasy bullpens? I w- I did not invest in the Kirby Yates and the Josh Haters and the Liam Hendricks, the Robert Roberto Suna. Well, Suna towards the end because of the the news he 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 fell in drafts. I um you know I was willing to roll the dice on Brandon Kinsler and Tony Watson. I mean a one out of two. I got I got the Kinsler part. I didn't get the Watson part. Uh, I was willing to roll the dice on the Jose Leclerc's and the Hensel Robles's that tier, just because, um, you know, where I, whereas I think that starting pitching wasn't going to be all that 
different than it has. I do think the narrative about saves being spread around was going to take place with uh, condensed games and three out of four, pitching three out of four. We already seen it with Taylor Rogers in Minnesota, uh, where where uh, he hasn't he isn't getting all the save opportunities. Um, we have we've seen with uh, Drew Pomeranz picking up a save with Kirby Yates already pitching three out of four days and not getting not 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 even being all save opportunities. So uh, I do you know so. The, the top closers could end up with 13 saves because they missed three or four of them because of the over, not so much overwork, but just work. Whereas Brandon Kinsler, well, not a good example because Miami's missing a, a week, but one of the lower closers to get 13 saves because he picks up all 13 of them from his team because he's not sitting out. So I was willing to take the chance. And I know that, and I'm one of the you know people that talk about ratios for closers are important. And they're, they are important, but in a 60-game sprint, you know, I'm not even a fan of the word sprint. If, if it's a marathon, uh, it's still, you know, still nine miles of a season, and nine miles is a pretty big sprint. So, um, anyway, um, I, uh, I I care about the ratios, but there's so much volatility, more so than ever. When I get my closer, I want saves. And I don't want just – I don't want ratios and saves like I wanted previously. Todd, uh, the rosters will be shrinking, as we know, after the second week, and then I think at least once more after that. Is that going to have any effect? Hmm. You know, forget we got one cut down then to, to 28, then one to, to, to 26. I think some of the – what we may see – there's actually some teams that have got that pinch runner for the extra innings, so we may see that guy disappear, and – we'll just see fewer relievers and, and maybe some second catchers. So I don't think it's going to be huge at this point. Cause for fantasy purposes, these players aren't that interesting anyway. Yeah. It's like you said with the, uh, those extra pitchers that are uh, hanging around because of the expanded roster, they were the pitchers who would have been the first ones cut had the, had the <laughs> rosters been normal sized. Uh, one other question about bullpens though, have you seen any effects or are you trying to strategize or, or, uh, use tactics in any way because of the three batter minimum requirement. Um, I, I've been trying to actually, it's weird. I, I actually been flipping around late innings to try to find scenarios where that's in place to see if I can see anything and have, I've not, I haven't seen it yet. Um, and I think a couple of the scenarios where it may have been important Atlanta with Mark Melanson and Will Smith, as far as saves go, Will Smith hasn't been active yet. So we haven't seen what, what's going to end up happening there. But I, I I think it may feed into the saves being spread out a little bit more, and uh, so I, I I think about it. I hear I hear the different announcing crews talk about it, and nothing struck me yet as wow I didn't think of that. So at this point, it just feeding the whole saves are spread out. Plan accordingly with your closers. Todd, interesting as always. We'll give you a, a breather give you a chance to get uh, down and ice your arm a little bit, and we'll have you back in a couple of minutes. All right. Todd Zola appears at Masters Ball Rotowire in Sirius XM. Coming up, it's our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Ray are on the way next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
In the batter buyer's guide, Stephen Nickrand looks at some bench targets, including Manura Sierra, Ildemaro Vargas, Miles Straw, and Mike Ford, and lots more. And don't miss out on Stephen's starting pitcher buyer's guide about six starters. In the Daily Call-Ups report, a ton of action with roster moves and the HQ scouting analysts are on top of all of them, including Cleveland outfielder Daniel Johnson, Seattle left-handed starter Justice Sheffield, Toronto right-handed starter Nate Pearson, who looked just great in his debut this week, St. Louis right-handed starter Jake Woodford, and a bunch more prospects. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Alain de Leonardis covers the National League East, including the huge impact of the COVID tearing through the Miami roster, the pending return of Juan Soto in Washington, and a triumphant return to action by Matt Adams in Atlanta. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day, and we have daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You have expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Some interesting news uh, took place in the National League this week, and perhaps no more story uh, interesting than uh, Atlanta Braves outfielder Nick Markakis, who opted out before the season because of his worries about the pandemic, has suddenly opted back in, and he's going to come back and play. Phil Hertz covered the story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ. What's the story here with Nick Markakis? Well, it's not clear when he'll be ready to play, and so uh, at this point we're only projecting him for 50% playing time the rest of the way. Uh, and that reflects the likelihood that he'll miss several games now and then uh, not be full-time once he comes back. But um, once he's activated, he'll get a lot of playing time. Uh, not a significant power source anymore. Uh, hasn't had a PX higher than 84 since 2012. But he has registered solid batting averages over his career and a career 358 on base percentage. So uh, really provides a, uh, a solid floor uh, and a very high floor for owners. Uh, not that high of a ceiling. Um, so th there's some real possibility here with Marcakis, uh, especially if you're looking for an outfielder who can give you some, uh, some batting average, uh, and make up for some of the other holes in your lineup. So Nick Marcakis is someone who certainly should be on your, uh, on your radar in terms of waiver this week. I was looking at his track record over the last few years, and he's been very consistently amassing full-time at-bats, over 600, right around 600 for almost every year except last year. And in almost every one of those years, he's been between 11 and $14 in rotisserie value 5x5, five five, according to Baseball HQ's valuation. The outlier was 2018 when he jumped up to $21 value because of a, a surge in home runs. But you're right about one thing that's really important here. He's the kind of guy who will amass at-bats once he gets back into the swing of things, we hope. 
and he is going to deliver batting average and on-base percentage. His last five OBPs have been 370, 346, 354, 366, 356, and in all five of those years, exactly a 10% walk rate. So this is a guy who knows his way around the strike zone. All his contact rates are well above 80%. So it's not like you're going to get a lot of home runs, but you are going to get a guy who gets on base a lot. He'll probably be somewhere in the scoring position in the order, which means... Probably a decent source of runs, probably a decent source of RBIs because guys who put the ball in play drive runs in. That Atlanta team has a lot of table setters. I like Nick Markakis, and I'm really curious to see what's going to go on this weekend when uh, uh, the fab frenzy erupts to try to get Nick Markakis because in such a short season, you might as well bid all your 1,000 or all your 100 or all your 260 or whatever it is you've got for fab. Well, that's true. That's true. Moving along, uh, we have another news story that I thought was interesting. Mike Moustakis was activated from the injured list uh, because he had, uh, I think, a wrist injury back in uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it looked like it might be longer than this, but he's come back quickly, and he came back loudly. He did. He he came back very loudly with a uh, two-run home run on his return to the lineup. He'll return now to regular second-base duties, uh, and that uh, causes some shuffling around. Uh, in the Cincinnati lineup, uh, utility players Josh Van Meter and Kyle Farmer uh, will lose playing time with uh, Musakas back in the lineup. Uh, and so cert- certainly somebody get back in your lineup right away. We're projecting 11 home runs, 34 RBIs, 266 batting average the rest of the way. So uh, a very solid uh, middle infielder in- into your lineup and should be back in there immediately. Another story, this one uh, a little less positive, uh, Miles Michaelis, the pitcher in St. Louis, done for the season. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. Uh, what are the ramifications in that St. Louis rotation? Yes, he has. A, he has, will have surgery on a flexor tendon, uh, and so Daniel Ponce de Leon is scheduled to take his start. Uh, Ponce de Leon started a dozen times during the 2019-2020 seasons. Uh, 49 innings last year, 3.70 ERA, so not bad, but an XERA of 4.54, a BPV of only 66. So uh, at, at this point, uh, Pasadena is the guy to look at, but uh, it's possible that Quang Hoon Kim is another option for the rotation. He's technically the card closer at the moment, uh, but they now have Giovanni Golegos uh, available to close if they want to put Kim into the rotation. So we could see quite a bit of shifting around, not only in terms of uh, the starting rotation, but also making a change at closer happening in St. Louis at this point. Yeah, and it's not like Kim was the first choice there anyway. Uh, they came into the season uh, hoping to have uh, Gallegos uh, or somebody other than Kim be the closer because they wanted Kim to start, and then they were kind of forced into this Kim deal because of injuries, and now Gallegos is on his way back. I, I think the all the tarot cards, if you pick them up and read them, look like Kim is going to go back into that rotation sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that's true. It looks like Kim will move into the rotation Uh probably fairly soon, and Gallegos will become the closer uh, once he's definitely ready to to return to game action. Nick, one of the things this season that a lot of people have been looking at is closer situations and save situations because there are so few of them in the shortened season and the category figures to be tightly bunched. Uh, but woe betide anybody who thought they could find those saves in Pittsburgh where the Pirates have uh, started with... Um, Keona Kayla as their closer, he got hurt. Then they went to uh, Kyle Crick. Now he's hurt. What the heck is going on with this huge mess in Pittsburgh? 
Yeah, it's a, it really is a hot mess in Pittsburgh right now in the bullpen. As you said, Kayla on the DL, Quick now on the DL. Um, Quick was, was really struggling. His velocity has been down this season, 91.5 uh, compared to 95.3 a year ago. And so when velocity is down that much, uh, that could explain uh, why he's headed to the DL. He's given up a quick up four runs on three hits, uh, two strikeouts, one walk, and one inning pitch. So the question is, who's going to come out of the bullpen now? Uh, Rich Rodriguez, Michael Feliz, Nick Birdie, uh, all of them uh, are possibilities. We've uh, increased save, uh, save percentages on all of them. Uh, the guy you may want to really look at is Nick Birdie. Birdie last year, if you look at just his ERA, was not all that good, a 9.35 ERA. But a 2.32 BPV, a 3.24 XERA, this is a guy who gets his strikeouts, 17.7 uh, Domus one season ago. Uh, at this point, so far this year, two innings pitched, four strikeouts, uh, and has yet to allow an earned run. So I think Birdie, if I were going to pick up somebody in the Pittsburgh bullpen, it would be Nick Birdie at the moment. Managers like to have some certainty in that. I think uh, maybe uh, the situation is going to be that Derek Shelton, a rookie manager, will say, I was worried about the closer situation here. This guy got the save. Good enough for me. Let me go worry about all the other things I have to worry about. Yeah, that could very well be the case. And Bertie certainly has the stuff uh, to work it, to work in that uh, in that position as the closer. The history is not as strong, but the stuff is certainly there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, Bertie's the guy certainly I would go for at this point. On the flip side, Nick, uh, the possibility exists that Nick Birdie's next timeout or the time after that will be some kind of disaster, and immediately the reaction of the manager might be, well, so much for that, on to plan W or whatever it is, because they've gone through so many uh, plans previously to this. So I guess what we can say is Nick Birdie's the place to put a, a soft bet if he's available in your league, but don't count on him to be a huge saves provider. Greg Pyron had an interesting analysis of a player that has really shot out of the cannon at the start of the season. Mike Yastrzemski, he of the famous last name in San Francisco, has been perhaps the hottest player in baseball. He certainly has. And, and at this point, you know, if I, I would certainly love to have him in my lineup at the moment. Uh, over, the first, uh, over this first week, he's hit 423 with two home runs, three RBIs. Um, Certainly a guy you would want in your lineup. The question is, can he continue? And if you go back and look at, uh, at uh, Pyron's analysis, which came back actually in the spring, because uh, uh, he had a fairly good year last season, uh, 272 batting average, 21 home runs, and 371 at-bats. There's some things to, to – uh, some reasons for caution at this point. Yastrzemski uh, right now has a track record, a very shaky contract rate, and a poor batting average. Uh, and uh, Pyron said that calls into question uh, – his 2019 batting average and his possibilities for this year. Um, his, his power index, uh, expected home runs, certainly supported the power outbreak a year ago. But given his history, we're kind of skeptical. Uh, decent wheels, but the success rate has been awful uh, and fared very well against left-handed pitching. Although a tiny sample, 76% contact rate, a 943 OPS against left-handers last season. Uh, but he was helped by a 27% home run per five rate and a 40% hit rate last season. And this season, of course, the hit rate is uh, is extreme at 53%. We know that's not going to continue. So our projections are not all that strong for Yastrzemski from here on out, a 247 batting average, nine homers, 21 RBIs, 
a couple of stolen bases, but also a couple of caught stealings. So, and, and only a 54 BPV projected. So, if I had Mike Yastrzemski on my or my team at this moment, I'd be looking to trade him. And Nick, one thing that I notice in Yastrzemski's skills profile in 2020 is there's been a huge increase in his walk rate at 19% versus 8% in the majors last year. Contact rate is still fairly low, around 70%, although that passes for normal nowadays, I guess. Uh, so do you think that walk rate augurs for some kind of improvements over what he did last year? If it continues, but remember, we're talking about a single week of performance here. Uh, and uh, and given the hot start, pitchers may be very careful with him at this point. Um, so that could be uh, a reason, certainly, for concern. And finally, Nick, uh, a fairly big name in the call-ups department. We have catcher-slash-outfielder Dalton Varsho has been called up by the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's rated an 8B, which is a pretty solid rating for us for a prospect in Baseball HQ's system. 8 is a solid regular borderline all-star, and B means he has a pretty good chance of achieving that kind of ceiling. Uh, what do we know about Dalton Varsho, and uh, how interested should we be? And the other interesting thing about Varsho is he's one of those catchers who possesses really good speed on the base pass, swiped 21 bases in 2019 uh, at AA and 19 the year before at a lower level. So this is a guy who's got some speed, also a plus hit tool. A career slash is 301 batting average, 372 on base, 507 uh, slugging. So uh, this guy is a guy who's got some possibilities. Now, the only question at the moment uh, is, uh, first of all, is he going to stick a catcher? Uh, he can play the outfield as well, and certainly that would make him a a uh, perhaps less desirable commodity. Although uh, anybody who swipes 21 bases or, or anything close to that in this season, where when no bases are being stolen at all, is certainly someone to take a look at. Um, and also the possibility is, uh, how is he going to do, of course, at the major leagues? And we don't know that at the moment. He doesn't look to get much initial playing time in 2020. He's the third catcher on the roster. Uh, but if you're in a dynasty league, I would grab him and stash him now. He's Arizona's number two prospect, number 78 overall. Uh, and if he gets into the lineup, could, could do fairly well. Last night, uh, first game back on Thursday night, uh, he was a pinch hitter and, and drew a walk. And that's a good sign. Uh, oftentimes, you know, a young player wants to swing the bat up there, but showed some decent discipline. Now, I think that the question that you mentioned is, uh, can this young player find his way through to some playing time? He's behind Carson Kelly and Steven voted catcher. And then in the outfield, they've got Cole Calhoun, uh, Starling Marte, and David Peralta. Peralta's obviously always an injury risk, so there may be an opportunity there. But otherwise, uh, the pathway to playing time is not clearly established, although, as Ron Chandler says, there's no such thing as no path to playing time. That's right. At this point, he's probably a bench bat, uh, and this may be the time, of course, to pick him up in case that playing time suddenly develops because uh, there certainly is an unusual profile here and one that could be useful in fantasy if he's able to get into the lineup. And in a lot of cases, in two catcher leagues, very many fantasy owners have a second catcher who's almost a placeholder anyway, or even a, even a detriment to have on the team because of low batting averages particularly, but also lack of productivity in general. You have to fill that second catcher slot somehow. So if, if it's possible to take one of those sort of scrubby catchers, dump him and add Varsho, when he hits, he'll hit. When he gets on base, he might run. And when he's not doing either of those things, at least he's not killing you. There you go. I think that's certainly something worth looking at. 
All right, Nick, uh, plenty of interesting news this week. I'm glad you could share it with us, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Nice to have baseball to watch, isn't it? Great to have baseball to watch. Uh, almost as good to have baseball to talk about. Uh, if nothing else, baseball is a talking game. Uh, half the fun of watching it is talking about it afterwards. Uh, unfortunately, when we talk about it this week, we have to start with some news we'd probably rather not talk about, and that's injuries. Some fairly significant injuries, and none more significant, I think, than the news about Justin Verlander. Yeah, the Justin Verlander news is, uh, you know, part of the t- a tip of a iceberg that might be going a little bit underreported here and that there have been sort of a spate of pitching injuries. Uh, the, a- the AL side here seems to be getting uh, particularly hit hard this week and Verlander is, uh, seems to be the tip of the spear. He's got a uh, forearm strain and the initial reports were that he was out for the season. Uh, Verlander pretty quickly disputed that, but I think we got to define what the season is a little bit. I, you know, knowing where the Astros are and what their aspirations are, I would not be the least bit surprised if Verlander is targeting, you know, late September and the playoffs to return, maybe even as a reliever. But he's shut down for now for two weeks, and I'm sure he'll be brought along pretty slowly from there. You also got to remember that we don't have, you know, the minor leagues for him to go out on rehab starts. So maybe he'll have to go over to the alternative campsite and throw to uh, the rest of the 60-man roster. Or maybe they'll bring him back as an opener and let him stretch out uh, in the rotation for the for the big club, all that remains to be seen. But I think projecting any significant value from him in the regular season is pretty optimistic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and even though Justin Verlander himself was very quick to get on Twitter and deny the the news that had been circulating around in the form of unsubstantiated rumor, which is kind of a specialty on Twitter when it comes to most things, but baseball injuries in particular, uh, Justin Verlander said, I'll be back within two to four weeks. And as you said, I mean, it sounds four weeks sounds bad enough, but four weeks is more than half the season, considering how short the season is. And it could very well be that four weeks is being very optimistic. And you mentioned the uh, the spate of injuries that we're seeing uh, affecting pitchers, not just in the American League, but in both leagues. But there seems to have been a lot of forearm-related injuries. Forearm, and, and they call them different things, which might make you think they, they are different things. But really, this is kind of a fuzzy area. And we hear forearm strains. We, we hear forearm tightness. We hear forearm soreness. But almost, uh, almost always, in my experience, when you hear about a pitcher who has forearm problems, uh, it's not long afterwards that you hear, oh, he's got elbow problems. And it's not long after that that you hear he's visiting James Andrews. And uh, the, so the bad news goes. You're 100% right. I want to bust in, you know, if I, was in a be- if I was a better singer, I would bust into the forearms connected to the elbow. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> but right. Yeah, totally. You're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the forearm strain versus elbow soreness versus the flexor tendon are all, uh, you know, that's all within, you know, a couple of centimeters of where the pain's resonating from. So, uh, you know, you can call it what you want, but uh, they all seem to be centered in the same part of the body. Uh, 
perhaps fortunately, perhaps unfortunately for Corey Kluber, he's also on the uh, injured list. Uh, doesn't look good for him. Not a, not an elbow problem, not a forearm problem. He has a problem, according to Matt Cedarholm, our big hurt columnist, the injury columnist at BaseballHQ.com, the terrace major muscle, a small muscle that connects the upper arm to the middle of the back, so it goes kind of around under your shoulder. Uh, this doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't at all. Uh, you know, Matt does a great job with the big hurt, and he's got a cute little graphic of a skeleton and where this uh, muscle is in his back. In, in his back, and it's it, it, I, when I looked at it, it kind of struck me as if you took your took either hand and kind of tried to reach back to your arm underneath your armpit. You would, you know, about as far as you can reach is where you would sort of get to that muscle. So you can sort of. Um, you can sort of imagine how on the on the throwing side of the body that that's uh, you know a pretty important muscle for Kluber. So uh, the you know it's not good news by any means, but there's more clarity as far as diagnosis here than there was for Verlander. He's been shut down for four weeks, which pretty much even more certainly ends his season. So uh, we're not going to see anything uh, significant from him. You know, again, it could be. You know, one of those situations where he comes back in the latter half of September if Texas is making a playoff push or if he just wants to demonstrate health going into the offseason. Off the top of my head, I believe he's a free agent. So even a couple of outings to show that he can throw might be valuable to him in the uh, offseason market. But in terms of returning anything useful to us fantasy players this year, that door is pretty much shut. Well, Matt reported that it's a grade two tear, which is substantial damage. And uh, the idea that he's going to be out for four weeks uh, seems a little bit optimistic because, again, Matt reported Mike Clevenger had a very similar injury last year, and he missed two full months. So that you're looking at eight or nine weeks in that case. Uh, there's not a lot of data, Matt says, but two to three months is more typical than uh, four weeks. So uh, if you have a Corey Kluber on your roster, uh, this might be the time to sort of figure out whether you even want to keep him if your league will give you money back for your fab in the event. Uh, I think this might not be a bad time to to speculate that Corey Kluber won't be back. And if he does come back, as you said, maybe he's uh, going to be an inning here, an inning there while they spool up for the playoffs, so assuming they're making a run. So if your league refunds your salary or some kind of gives you some kind of benefit for cutting an injured guy, Corey Kluber might be a guy to look at. Uh, also sticking with Matt Cedarholm's big hurt column, he reported on Ken Giles, the uh, closer in Toronto. Uh, speaking of forearm strains a minute ago, here we have a forearm strain, um, and he's been having some trouble in the past. Again, Ray, this does not look at all good. No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, I, When Matt wrote, I don't think the... Uh severity of the uh or the re the read of the mri was back yet so we didn't have a sense of the severity but matt uh through the medium recovery median recovery time on a forearm strain at about four weeks uh the only real difference from uh the verlander situation here is that giles is a reliever and really would only be asked to be thrown to throw one inning at a time so what when he got cleared to throw it's not as much, there's not as much runway between when he got cleared to throw and when he might be able to throw an inning in a big league game. Uh, but you're still looking at, you know, probably September here. And, you know, we can talk about the rest of the, uh, the rest of the Toronto bullpen. You've probably been watching them over the last week or so, PD, but there's, uh, probably no guarantee that Giles would even walk right back into the closing role at that point. So, another case, I would say, where if you've got a fab reclaim or if you're able to chase, 
uh, somebody who might be able to replace Giles and saves for you on the free agent market, I'd probably go for, I'd, I'd probably throw Giles aside and go for uh, the immediate replacement. And the Jays do have some options, and they're not shy about using them. Uh, manager Charlie Montoya has thrown everybody out there, but the uh, ball boy, uh, Anthony Bass, has seen some relief duty. Rafael Dolis has seen some relief duty. Anthony Kay appeared late in the game the other night. And uh, Shun Yamaguchi, the uh, Japanese pitcher they brought over in the offseason, has been disastrous in a relief role and looks like he could be out of the running as a closer or even as a sort of high leverage reliever in the near future because he's been really bad. He's getting hit all over the place when he's throwing strikes at all, which isn't that awful. Uh, that uh, Well, it is awful, but it isn't that often <laughs> that he's throwing strikes. And uh, they have Thomas Hatch they've called up recently, so they, they may be doing a mix and match thing. Although, if I had to pick one of them, I think it would be Anthony Bass. You know, it's funny. You, I think you just mentioned seven relievers, and you missed the one I wanted to talk about, <laughs> which just speaks to the sort of depth and variety in the bullpen there. I do agree with you. Bass has gotten the first save up, and he was throwing the eighth inning uh, before Giles got hurt. It does seem like he's the guy for the moment. If the wheel were going to spin again and land on somebody else, uh, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of names there. The other one that is kind of interesting to me so far, I'm wondering what you've seen from uh, Jordan Romano. Well, Jordan Romano has been terrific in his brief uh, uh, stint in the major since he got called up, and he's got a really terrific sinker. He can really sink the ball with a lot of velocity, and he's looked very effective. The question is, if Toronto aspires to making a playoff run, are they going to entrust the closer's role to a guy with this little experience? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, sometimes you know we, the sinker ball profile is – a little unusual in the closer role and you wonder if uh, a guy who can get strikeouts and double plays well first of all you can use a guy who can get strikeouts and double plays in any role you want to but you wonder if he might be the uh seventh or eighth inning coming with guys on base and induce that double play role uh but he's he, he's got good skills he's uh he's been impressive in the first week uh Dolis is another one who i know uh our tom mohal who covers the uh asian marketplace for the baseball forecaster talks about guys coming over every winter the, through the posting system, et cetera, flagged Delise in the offseason as somebody who had really, you know, his previous major league career was rather unimpressive, and he's now 32 or 33, but he did really reinvent himself overseas and, uh, you know, has what should be viable skills. So that's, uh, there, there are several names to watch here. I spent the better part of my Sunday afternoon with my fab bids trying to sift through these guys and figure out where the, uh, where where the role was going to fall or who I really wanted to, wanted to roster it was uh it was it was not an easy slog before i forget the uh Justin Verlander injury has of course caused a cascade of uh, roster adjustments in Houston and one of the possibilities that has popped up we're going to talk about Jose Arquiti in a couple of minutes but uh, they called up uh, a guy Christian Javier he's a right-hander uh, he was a minor league pitcher of the year for Houston last year I don't think we should be sleeping on Christian Javier either. I think this kid could really make a make a splash. I think that's right. I, you know, he started a lot, started on Wednesday night, and you know, he may be just a placeholder in the rotation. While you said they're, you know, they're waiting on Urquidy, and we might see Forrest Whitley at some point. But um, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on here was our massive call up reports that our minor league staff puts up in the first week of every season. And uh, this year was no exception. In fact, it may have even been a bigger list than, list than usual. So in our scouting area under the, 
call-ups column where every day during the season we put up uh, new players that were called up to the majors for the first time with a with a thumbnail scouting report. Last week, uh, our minors team did that for everybody who's making their major league debut, which is more than 100 players. So you know, the, the impact of that uh, effort was pretty significant. And the great thing about it is all of these capsules go into every player's player link page. So when I can't tell you how many times in the last week I've gone scurrying off watching a game or looking at a box score and be like, who the heck is Ryan Thompson? And go and, you know, grab the call-up report and read about him with the Cardinals or you know, Rays or uh, whoever it is. So Javier's got a nice uh, profile here um, from that exercise where we tagged his potential as a number three starter and in our uh, prospect rating system, he carries an, an 8D rating, which is, uh, you know, pretty viable. And he's fully stretched out as a starter. It's He's not somebody who's going to work as an opener. And, you know, that Houston team is so good that you have to be interested in any competent pitcher who's going to pitch with that lineup behind them. So, yeah, I am I am interested. And 8D means uh, the expectation is that he's going to be a solid performer, maybe a shade short of an all-star, much less a Hall of Famer, which is a 10-level sort of player. And the D means... Probably about a 30% chance of reaching that ceiling. So, you know, even even one notch down from that, he starts getting more and more likely to be an everyday pitcher who's not going to be terrific. But uh, Chris Blessing's analysis of Christian Javier I thought was really interesting because he talks about his fastball as a plus pitch but usually when we hear that in a scouting report, Ray, what we're hearing is velocity. This guy can bring it. It's 97 miles an hour. It's 98 miles an hour. Javier's fastball is 92 miles an hour. But the reason he gets scouted as a plus fastball is because on any particular pitch, he can throw it 88, he can throw it 96, and he does. He manipulates speed and movement on the fastball, which really sets up all of his other pitches, which are average at best uh, according to Chris Blessing but you have to like a guy who can spot a fastball and change speeds even by three or four miles an hour it almost takes on the effect of a changeup. if you throw fastball number one at 96 and the next one at 88 that's an eight mile an hour difference that's what you're looking for pretty much in a change but it's still a fastball with fastball movement yeah and you can see that's what the interesting thing about that is that's one of those skills that sort of plays at any level, right? You know, you can get, you know, if you could change speeds and locate, you can get everybody out from high schoolers to major leaguers, uh, you know, without having to worry about just rearing back and firing. And, you know, so that's not to say he's going to do this right. every night, but, right. um, but, but, you know, he was effective against the Dodgers the other night, which is no small feat. You know, he, he struck one walk in eight Ks in uh, five and two thirds innings against that, uh, against that Dodgers lineup is certainly nothing to sneeze at. That's exactly right. He didn't. He didn't look like a boy among men when he faced that uh, powerful Dodgers lineup. Uh, and carrying on with the call-ups reports, uh, there's been a lot of them because there's been a lot of roster movement. Another guy who got called up and and covered Anthony Alford, the Toronto outfielder. Yeah, you know, I was scrolling through the hundred plus names on there, and you know, I'm not a prospect wonk like. Uh, you know, Jeremy Deloney or Rob Gordon or Chris Blessing or even Brent Hirschiar. So, you know, I often scroll through this. I'm like, oh, look, that guy. I remember either him from when he got drafted or he was on a top 100 list a couple of years ago and then he sort of disappeared or fell off my radar or what have you. But there were a lot of guys on this list who, you know, just sort of resonated like, I remember that guy or, you know, oh, this guy finally made it. And Alfred was one of them. Um, and I thought it was worth flagging him just – because you know he's another guy who carries uh, you know a prospect rating of an, uh, that starts with an eight there, which you know implies you know some fairly decent potential. We've been waiting on him for a little bit for a little bit of time here, but 
I wanted to flag them because, you know, like you, for exactly the reason you said, there's been so much roster churn in just the first week of the season. And that there's every reason to think that's just going to keep going all year long that, you know, guys like this may end up getting a lot of playing time in a few weeks or for the last month of the season as injury and illness attrition wears down rosters. So getting familiar with these names now before they get their opportunity, obviously you can't stash all of them, but knowing they're out there and knowing where to pivot to if you're going through an exercise like I was talking about this past Sunday in, you know, three or four weeks from now where the Blue Jays have lost a couple of outfielders and like, oh, Alfred's getting a chance. I should probably take a look at him. So I was just doing going through this list as sort of background reading for now because a lot of them aren't regulars yet. But a bunch of the names caught my, my eyes. You're a Blue Jay guy. You've probably been following Alfred for a few years. What's your take there? He can't hit. You know, that's, his, well, that's, that's the, problem. the problem. Yeah, I mean, he's got <laughs> 55 at-bats in the big leagues uh, the last three seasons. He's got a 145 batting average, 203 on base, 218 slugging percentage. That isn't going to work. He has hit 300 here and there at the lower levels of the minors and in the Mexican League, and I think he hit around 310 in AA in 2017, and pretty decent number of plate appearances, had an 835 OPS. But since then, his peak OPS has been around 750 in AAA in 2019, and he has posted some lower levels. What he can do, Ray, is run. He's 143 stolen bases and about 2,500 plate appearances across all levels, including four stolen bases and no caught stealings in uh, limited major league experience. He has one stolen base this year as a pinch runner as well, and his great speed definitely helps him defensively as a center fielder. But, Ray, I I don't think the Jays are going to play a guy who is very likely to post a 600-ish OPS despite all the speed that he brings to the table. The bags might play from a fantasy perspective, especially in an American League-only situation where he could pinch run and steal five or six bases. That could be five or six points in the shortened season and the bunched statistics. But other than that, I don't see a great future here. Ray, another guy that got reported on in the call-ups, Zach Collins, speaking of guys you don't remember about really, uh, got called up. He's a catcher first baseman for the White Sox. What's going on there? Yeah, this is a guy who I jumped on back in uh, a few years ago when he was a uh, first-round pick as a, you know, the initial scouting report was a catcher with OBP and power, and particularly in my my sim sim leagues, my scorching leagues, I was like, ooh, I am all over this. Uh, Catchers with OBP and power in uh, Chicago for, you know, in that format would be killer. Of course, He's got some defensive limitations, and now he's pretty blocked with Yasmani Grandal showing up in um, in Chicago to be the lead catcher for the next several years. But again, attrition, and I saw actually caught him uh, pinch hitting the other night. He's on the big league roster. He he can masquerade at first base too, which on that particular team doesn't hurt, doesn't really help because of Jose Abreu and Encarnacion. So you know, no immediate path to playing time here, but also in this season. Uh, you know, one of the things we were saying all spring long was we're no longer using the words no path to playing time. So it all it takes is one uh, misplaced foul ball off of Grandal or maybe even uh, a hamstring or something for Encarnacion or Abreu to carve a path to playing time here. And this bad plays. So I, that's why I sort of remain interested. Another guy that's been drawing a lot of attention on Twitter uh, amongst uh, some guys I really respect Right-handed reliever uh, James Karinchak in Cleveland. Oh yeah, the, it was, this is literally a case where when I was going through doing the initial projections, uh, geez, like eight months ago now, back in 
December, January, and pulling minor leaguers who needed to have a big league projection up. I pulled uh, Karinchik's uh, numbers from AAA last year and ran them through our adjustments to get a major league equivalent for that and said, no, that's got to be a typo. <laughs> I mean, he literally, in uh, AAA Columbus last year, his uh, K per nine was 21.8. It's, it's like, come on, that can't be right. Um, so, you know, there's uh, he, he gets into that bullpen, uh, you know, and like everybody else, that he'll have to uh, work his way into a prime role. But uh, I saw Brad Hand blow up the other night, and there was, you know, there were some concerns about Brad Hand coming into this year after the way he ended last year. And uh, Hand, I, I don't think it was a blown save. I think it was in a tie game, but he gave up uh, three or four runs. So, you know, if uh, reliever, if, if managers are not going to be patient with struggling closers, Tito Francona may uh, spin the closer carousel there sooner than later, and uh, the stuff alone suggests that it shouldn't be long until he lands on Karinczyk. Yeah, right now, uh, Baseball HQ has him uh, second in line behind hand and ahead of Whitgren and Simber. Uh, they could also do a sort of bullpen by committee approach. The one uh, big attraction you mentioned about Karinczyk is this uh, tremendous strikeout rate, but uh, thus far in his short run in the majors, he's also had a little trouble with control. He's got uh, two walks, I think, and four uh, strikeouts in his time in the majors this year. It's a very small sample, but that kind of reflects what was going on in the minors as well. Yeah, that's the hang up. And, you know, it, the, the downside is, you know, that can make for uh, some pretty painful, scary innings and tough to earn the manager's con- confidence. On the other hand, you know, we've seen the story, it's a story as old as time, but if that control ever locks in, then just watch out. You know, that's when he turns into, you know, vintage Eric Gagne or something like that. Not to say it's going to happen, but, uh, you know, he could always be one adjustment away. Another pitcher, and this is a guy I really hadn't heard that much about before I read about it at BaseballHQ.com, Brady Singer in Kansas City. Yeah, I if I remember the first time I was introduced to him, uh was a viral YouTube video where he was drafted and uh, after he signed his contract, he bought his parents a house. Um, so oh, good for him. I, I, you know, which you know, speaks to his character and all that. So, uh, you know, good, easy guy to root for in that sense. But yeah, he's a former, I believe, first round pick and, uh, you know, is sort of uh, controversial in this, in the um, scouting circles, I guess, with people, uh, you know, the, the minor league types having a, uh, varied opinion about him and his ability to make it work as a big league starter or whether he's a back-end guy or has higher level potential than that. Uh, first start for the Royals was was quite good, and uh, he's, you know, given the lack of depth in the Royals rotation, given the development opportunity here, and given, uh, you know, the Royals' longer-term outlook, there's certainly every reason to think that they're going to stick with him. He uh, he had two walks and seven strikeouts in five innings the other week, and that's certainly enough to earn him a few more starts. Uh, certainly, that was against that was against the Indians, and certainly uh, the, you know, the central schedule provides both peril and opportunity there. You're going to want to be cautious against the Twins and the White Sox, but when he sees the Tigers, that sounds better, and uh, I forget the Royals interleague schedule off, off the top of my head, but if he sees the Pirates, that's good news too. So he might be a matchup guy or a uh, spot starter at least uh, for the next uh, nine weeks or so here. I thought the same thing when I, when I read the uh, Baseball HQ analysis by Jock Thompson, who covers the uh, Kansas City Club for Baseball HQ's playing time today. 
the opportunity here seems to have arisen first because Mike Montgomery, the left-handed starter, went on the IL with uh, some kind of lat problem. And then they uh, also lost a relief pitcher, Foster Griffin, dreaded forearm injury. So it looks like there may be opportunities, even if Montgomery comes back sooner than expected or as soon as expected, because uh, as Jock says, the Royals are not going to score a lot of runs, which means there could be a lot of, you know, three, two games going late into the late into the evening. And this may be an opportunity for a guy like Brady Singer to find a niche as a part-time starter, as you said, and maybe uh, doing some appearances out of the bullpen, depending on how everything else is shaking out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Brady Singer is clearly in some form part of the Royals' future, and they want to evaluate how he fits in. Mike Montgomery is not part of the Royals' future. So, uh, you know, to the extent now that Singer has the ball in his hands, I think it's very much within his own control how much more work he gets. And one last call-up I'd like to ask you about, Ray. Uh, in Los Angeles, the Angels, Patrick Sandoval has is a name that we've been hearing around for the last year or more, and all of a sudden here he is, and he seems to have an opportunity as well, given the state of pitching and baseball in general and the Angels in particular. Yeah, he's pretty interesting in the... Um... You know, we've, we've been on him since uh, back in the offseason a little bit. Uh, we called him a speculative flyer in the uh, baseball forecaster, and now he has uh, snuck into the rotation. Uh, I think Stephen Nickrant covered him in his uh, sixth starters column in the starting pitcher's buyer's guide this week. Uh, the good news for him relative to all the other six starters is he's on a team that's using a six-man rotation. So sixth starter in this case means he has a job because of the way the Angels have structured their rotation around uh, Shohei Otani's schedule and all of that. So uh, you know, he was pretty good uh, in nine starts for the Angels last year. He's not a uh, you know a radar gun darling or anything like that, like some of the other guys we've talked about here. But you know he's got a good changeup and uh, you know gets a lot of awkward swings and misses according to our scouting report. And you know he also pitched uh, the other night. Uh, he made his first start against Seattle. And it was a little bit of a shorter outing. He only threw four innings and 60-something pitches, but uh, one run allowed, one walk in four Ks. So that's uh, you know, perfectly respectable for first time through the rotation and I would think would earn him some more opportunities as we go forward here. A little earlier, we mentioned uh, Jose Urquidy in Houston, maybe a, one of the candidates to move up because of the Verlander situation. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also mentioned Urquidy in that same column. Yes, he did. And Urquidy, I think at this point, is... You know, whether he takes the spot from uh, Christian Javier, who we talked about earlier, or Framber Valdez, you know, I think behind, let me see if I can do this off my head, top of my head, behind Grinky and McCullers and Josh James uh, as the top three starters after Verlander's injury in Houston. I think four and five are up for grabs. Javier and uh, Valdez have them right now, but I think the Urquidy, who was late coming to camp because of um, undisclosed reasons slash presumed COVID-19 quarantine situation. Once he gets uh, ready to go, I think he jumps into that rotation for sure. And Forrest Whitley might as well. We'll see. But as we said earlier, there's a, there's a lot to like about Javier and Valdez had a good, a good start too. So, you know, all is not lost for the Astros without Verlander here. They've uh, they're, they're mixing and matching the pitching, but they're mixing and matching it with, uh, you know, with people who have legitimate talent. So let's not, uh, let's not shed a tear for those guys. 
really good command in the minors, and then he carried it through last year in the majors in his uh, run with Houston. He had a 5.7 strikeout-to-walk command ratio, which is really good, and uh, even better against lefties, which is kind of weird for a right-handed pitcher. So uh, he's not your typical overpowering type of guy, more of a more of a nibbler, more of a finesse pitcher, but he seems to be able to get the job done and could easily be somebody who could really do well ERA and, and especially whip-wise because of that command that he has. And finally... Uh, Stephen Nickrand also says uh, Kobe Allard in Texas is already probably moving up the depth charts because of what's going on in Texas. Uh, what does Stephen seem to like about Kobe Allard? Yeah, there um, we could we could have touched on Allard when we were covering uh, Corey Kluber because he's a uh, Allard seems to be the beneficiary of the Kluber injury. Uh, you know, Allard's only twenty two. He came up with the Braves and moved over to the Rangers last year and, you know, took a lot of lumps, but, uh, you know, one reason to be optimistic about him, Patrick, that you and I talked about back, uh, pre pandemic was the new ballpark in Texas, uh, and how the, a roof with uh, temperature control and humidity control was going to, uh, make it a much more friendly pitching environment. And, you know, we don't decide ballpark factors over one week's worth of games, but so far that Texas park has been nothing like, the Texas environment we're used to. It's much more pitching friendly, at least early on. So that's maybe one reason that, you know, if we're all hardwired not to be interested in who the fifth starter is in Texas, maybe it's time to change that. Uh, as for Howard himself, uh, you know, he finally sh- showed some promise uh, in August, September last year when he was in the Rangers rotation. Uh, he was basically avoiding the barrel of the bat. His, uh, his barrel rate, Stephen noted, was among the lowest in the majors over that time. Uh, you mix that with a 45% ground ball rate, and you know it just suggests that he is getting people to not hit the ball hard and, when they, and getting them to hit it on the ground, which is uh, two tent poles of, uh, of, of a uh, successful approach to pitching. That was interesting, and it did catch my eye because his strikeout rate is not that great. A 6.6 strikeout per nine dominance rate is not something that everybody goes, oh, that's something i got to really be looking at. But all of these other sort of secondary metrics, the 2.6% barrel rate, you mentioned one of the lowest. Uh, Steven says the second lowest in Major League Baseball um, last year. So uh, it, it's a mixed bag of skills because you do like to see the strikeouts. But at the same time, there's plenty of room in, uh, in a pitching rotation for a guy who gets, you know, half ground balls and very few of them hit hard. That's right. And, you know, maybe not a... Uh fantasy darling exactly because of the caves, but you know, in uh, you know, a, a safe Harbor in terms of ratios still has some value. And uh, you know, as I said, that's not something you've really, any of us have ever gotten looking for in the back of the Texas rotation, but you know, these are interesting times, PD. Yeah. There's a curse. I remember reading that somebody said where in a culture where they said, may you live in interesting times. They didn't mean it well for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Ray, for helping us out. A really good uh, big week of news. And we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds great, PD. Thank you as always. Ray Murphy is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and co-general manager of the site. And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Stay with us. Todd Zola again on Baseball HQ Radio coming right up. I played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dream of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards. 
You see, I always have been a fan of the game first and a ball player second. Maybe that's why I had the love and passion for this great game so much. I, I only caught five or six games my senior year of high school. But during those five or six games, a scout by the name of Bob Zuck, who is here with us today, believed I could become a big league catcher someday. He held true to his word, and on the night of the draft, at 18 years of age, I signed a contract with the Expos and started my, making plans to head off to Jamestown, New York. Bob, thanks for believing in me. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Todd Zola, welcome back. Good to be back with you, PD. I have a question for you about the volatility of the stats. After Tuesday's games, and again, that was very short into the season, the PA leaders were in the low to mid-20 plate appearances. David Fletcher was among the league leaders in OPS. He had a 1276. Christian Yelich, meanwhile, was rocking a 269 OPS, an 087 on base percentage. Under normal circumstances, we would have another 600, six and a quarter more plate appearances to come, and we would expect those numbers to normalize and possibly stabilize. But in a 60-game season, we only have, what, maybe 200, two and a quarter to come. What should we expect about stat volatility and players returning to their expected norms given the shortened time horizon? Right. So there's a couple reasons why numbers are, are what they are early on. There could be, you know, good, bad luck happening early on. And it could just be that a team is facing a, a strong or a weak opponent either hitting or pitching, whichever side of the ball that they're on. So as far as the normalization goes, you know, if, if, if a team is facing a really, really good pitching staff to start, the numbers are down, and the next time they're going to face a weaker staff, and, and there you go, it's, it's back to normal again. But something like a lucky streak, over 162 games, you, you assume that the rest of the games, the players perform at their, at their norm. So when you factor in what's already been done, and add it on, yeah, sure, if a guy was going to hit 280, maybe the initial hot streak, he's going to end the season at 283, then no one says anything. Uh, but in a 60-game season, a guy, Jackie Bradley, like 7 for 11, started off, you know, started off really hot. By the end of the year, even if he hits his normal whatever it is, 240, 250, he's going to end up with a 250, uh, you know, 260 batting average. So what's, what's done is done, but when you add in what's to come at the norm, it's just going to make the year ending the year ending numbers be a little bit higher than they were coming in. But I don't think there's any. I mean, it just that's just it, it, then the question is going to be next year. How do you how do you factor that into you know figuring out how they're going to do in 2021? But we'll worry about that when the time comes. So, do you think this is the time to make a low ball offer on Christian Yelich? Or you mentioned Adalberto Mondesi. I think has the lowest. Uh, o OPS among hitters with 20 or more plate appearances around 238. Uh, Ronald Acuna is at 407 for an OPS, and he's striking out more than half the time. Would you make an offer on these guys, hoping that uh, their owners are frustrated? Uh, yes, I would. And if they accepted it, I'd look to get in a different league because I don't want to be in a league with someone that would accept an offer for Yelich this early. 
if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, the, the play is to make it. And 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 maybe someone is nervous. And and it, I don't know if I do a low ball offer, but if you do a, a you know something in the middle where you're offering a pretty good player that's off right. to a pretty decent start, sure, test the waters. But it just, you know, I get I get frustrated when I see someone, you know, I try I dealt away this person and I got Yelich. And, well, I mean, part of my job is to analyze trades and whatnot. But it's just kind of uh, ah, this kind of stuff goes on out there. Yeah, you, well, there there is a flip side, too, because you could make an offer with somebody like Kyle Lewis, who got off to a hot start. Uh, Fletcher, I mentioned. Will Myers is over 1,000 OPS. J.P. Crawford is over 1,000 OPS. I mean, this on its surface could look like a reasonable offer because, you know, you are giving up somebody who's on a burner to start the season and you could be forgiven for thinking that maybe he's changed something uh, about his game. Eric Hosmer comes to mind. Apparently he made a big swing adjustment in the off season and that has had perhaps a lasting effect. And if you don't believe it, maybe you go to somebody and you say, Hosmer for Yelich, what do you think? I mean, most guys are going to say no, but there's a case to be made at least that there's you know some news in the noise that would justify somebody's frustrated with Yelich for whatever reason, maybe worries about a back problem lingering over from last year. You could make that offer with a straight face. Yeah, again, I accept the offer and then look for a new look for a new league. I just. It, it, I don't think you, I, I can't make it with a straight face. And I could be wrong. Yelich is the issue with, well, you brought it up with Yelich. The back problem is sort of the wild card in there. So if, if that's the opening, if, if the wild card, uh, if, if the back problem is the rationalization for, for making the offer, uh, there's, you know, that, that's, that's okay. But um, I just, you know, Acuna, maybe a better, you know, Acuna who doesn't have any health issues right now is just, just flailing away, striking out left and right. I think half the time he's been up, he's struck out, he's been so far. Um, to me, that it's a, it's a bit of a different story, but uh, you know, I just and the I don't want to say the circles are running because that sounds a little too elitist, but it's just uh, at this point, I think people, if they're taking the game seriously, there's enough out there to understand that water will find its level, and even a 60 game season, there's still there's still boundaries, and uh, you know, Kyle Lewis, Will Myers, the, those just they're the, to me, that argument is, is weak if you want to try to get a top player. And how do you think owners should respond to guys that we know are good hitters, but they're still overperforming? Anthony Rizzo's at 1,300 OPS. He's slugging 800-plus. Uh, Michael Brantley's off to a hot start, 1,160. Carlos Correa seems like we've been waiting for for years at uh, mm. over 1,200. Uh, when I'm sitting with my team and I look at a, a, a Rizzo or a Brantley on my team and I say, hmm... How do you react to a good hitter doing better than he should? Yeah, this is a little different here. This is, I mean, any of these times we're talking, it's the difference in, you know, if a player's over underperforming, where the landing spot is. So if there's a difference in the landing spot, that's where the opening is to make a trade. I, you know, I, I call these things selling high. If 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 someone believes that, that Rizzo's overperforming and where do they feel he will land? And if it's lower than where I feel, I will, I will, I will buy high. I'm sorry, I call, I call it buying high. I will buy, I will buy one of these players high, and because uh, if I feel their landing point, whether eventually do the rest of the season, is higher than someone else. Now Rizzo, you know, it was just a week ago we we're all concerned about his back, and like you mentioned, he's 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 come out on fire. Um, and it, it, 
I think Brantley's injuries woes are a bit in the past, but Correa, I can't, I don't think we can say the same about Carlos Correa. So I'm, I'm always willing to, to buy high if, uh, if I feel there's something in the numbers that the landing point will be a little bit higher. Moving over to pitchers, I, I always expect volatility will be even more pronounced when we're talking mm. about pitchers. So I have two questions. Uh, ordinarily, our advice to owners who have got off to an extra bad start in ERA and WHIP, as I have this year in a couple of my teams, we tell you, be patient. Expect regression towards the mean. You have plenty of time to make up these decimals. But really, what we're talking about now is a, is a league that's, you know, two months from being over. Is it still good advice in a season with so many fewer innings to make up ground to to stay the line and uh, be, and be patient? I think you have to because I don't think it's so much I don't think it's so much that you have to make up ground, but I think your opponents, uh, you know, maybe you you had a you had you know someone out there had Lucas Giolito. Um, one of your yeah, your opponents are each going to get one of those outings, and you're going to be in the same the same foot again. So, because with, with with the fewer innings base, a bad outing is going to hurt them more than it normally would. So, it's to me, it's not so much you need to make up ground. Is your your opponents are are going to be suffering at some point? At least they, sh- you know, odds are that they they're not going to have, you know, nine clean weeks of good performances. So somewhere along the line, there's going to be a bump. Um, I so I don't know that I would go too overboard at this point. I think. Maybe, maybe I don't, no, actually no, because I I haven't changed aggressiveness. I'm still staying aggressive. What I am, what I do think about the 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 volatility is, uh, I think you feed into the volatility by the one thing that you can I don't want to say count on, but you can uh, at least hope you get with streaming, et cetera, is strikeouts. So I'm willing to stream, I'm willing to double start that sort of thing to pound up the strikeouts. Hopefully, get a couple extra wins out of it. And hope the, the the ERA whip volatility is not against me. So I'm kind of I don't say the sure thing, but I'm taking the one of the five pitching stats strikeouts that you can do something about with volume. What about the possibility of dropping some of your weaker starters or the guys who are more suspect and going Lima type guys? You know those middle relievers, uh, seventh inning relievers who have the much better decimals. And because of the short season and the reduced number of starts, maybe the innings disparity isn't quite as marked as it would be in a normal season. No, I like that. The Drew Pomerantis, who's already picked up, a, who's already picked up a, a save, and use Mary Petit, those sort of players. I, I yes, those. I, I and uh, yes, I want a couple of those guys because what, whereas I was, I'm heavy. I'm not against getting a couple of good pitches early. Uh, I kind of stayed out of the middle. Because I, by taking some pitches early, I needed to build up the bats, and then I went pitching strong at the end again with the sole plan of of of, of streaming. So, the, the, and whenever you stream, you need to have that the backup middle relievers that you kind of alluded to as the backup plan in case you can't find pitchers that week. So I had those guys on my roster already. So I love that idea. And you just the the, the problem that you, you run into. Well, first of all, it's uh, streaming Martin Perez against the Orioles, bad, bad idea, Zola. Uh, but the thing is, when, when, when one of your lesser pitchers has a good outing, you're tempted to keep him. And, you know, you went, you did this plan by planning on dropping him and picking up the next guy. And, you know, there was a reason he had a good outing. It was against Detroit or against Kansas City, et cetera. 
let go and and stream the next guy in. So I do, but the, you know, the, the the part about the middle relievers, if you're doing this, I do think you need them. And they're the other, you know, the other part about it is they're going to help you get those the the odd save here and there. And I think that's going to be important at the end of the year. And finally, Todd, uh, there's been a a few people I've read that said because the the season is shorter, there's less time to make up space, the error bars for pitchers are already fairly wide, and then if you add mm. in the fact that there's a, a, a decreased amount of time for them to normalize, is it possible to speculate on guys hoping like heck that you're going to catch some upside and being willing to accept the risk of the downside because really you see no other path to fixing the problems that are ailing your team in the pitching decimals? Yeah, you have to. And that's where some of these, I kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking about trades, um, look at some of these underlying metrics, the spin rate, the velocity. Now, of course, if we can trust these numbers with uh, with the new Hawkeye system at this point, I'm not sure we can even trust a lot of these numbers. Uh, that's, that's kind of a whole different discussion. But yeah, I think you, I don't think I don't think you want to just throw it. Uh, or just this guy had a good game. Pick him up. But if there's a reason, whether you, you notice it was a different pitch mix, uh, throwing his four seamer more or less, and you know throwing more change up or curves or whatever, not or and or an increased spin rate, that sort of thing. If you know, give me a reason. Now the problem is that you know I mentioned Lucas Giolito previously. He he was terrible for his first three starts, and he had last year, and he had incorporated all these changes already. They just didn't come to fruition until until May which this year is half the year. So if, you know, even if you would notice Giolito's improve, you know, I don't differences last year and picked him up, you wouldn't reap the, you wouldn't, you may, you may have dropped him again because <laughs> after two more starts, you may say that ah, he, he changed this, but it's still, he's still the same old, same old and dropped him. So even if you notice one of these things, it, you may not reap the benefits. So, I mean, that feeds more into, you You know, maybe you should just take a chance just because, but I guess I I guess I have a hard time doing that. Maybe you should. Maybe the answer is yes. But my DNA isn't isn't such that I can say yes. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from Rotowire Masters Ball. And Todd, uh, you've launched this year's Tout Wars DFS League. What changes did you have to make, if any, to the format because of the shortened season? Yeah, a couple things. Um, we, you know, we still wanted to to make it fun and 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 get enough people involved. And I felt if you missed a week, you were just kind of in trouble. So what we did was instead of doing a once a week contest, we're going to do twice a week. So we're running Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sorry, sorry, Tuesdays and Fridays. So if you miss a Tuesday, um, okay, maybe maybe you have a lesser chance to get a ticket into the finals on the Tuesday, but you can make it up for you can still do it on the Fridays. So it's one of something, something like that. And um, other than that, it's, it's, it's kind of the same and it's really the same because I had did a terrible night last night. So we're, we're, everything is pretty much the way it was back to normal, but um, that's, that's mainly the only difference is running it twice a week. And uh, I think three, three week periods. I, yeah, maybe it was four week last year. There were just consecutive four week periods, but uh, just to, just to get it all in, um, we're doing twice a week, three times uh, each period. The, the winner from each three uh, three game period will get into our finals. 
In a broader sense, Todd, uh, how has the shortened season and the various spinoff effects, as we've discussed, affected uh, your tactics playing DFS? Uh, <laughs> it, it really has. I, I, uh, DFS, you, I mean, used to be a lot bigger of a, uh, I don't want to say deal to me, but I, a focus. Um, I no longer write about it, so I don't. Uh, it's it's less of a focus. I'm doing other things, so I still play more for the fun aspect. I haven't noticed a whole lot thus far. What I have noticed, I've noticed a little bit softer pricing than I've seen in the past couple of years, and whether that's to uh, attract uh, more players, I don't. I don't know. But um, I, well, actually, no. I what it what it. I'll I'll go to we play Tout Daily Tuesday night, um, and I I think I tweeted about this. Uh, I mean, I couldn't, I, I could barely, I couldn't find a whole lot of pitching that I felt would even go five innings to get the win. And I know this feeds into our thing talking about earlier about pitching, but keeping in mind, this is the fourth and fifth starters for most teams. So I'm not, I wouldn't expect these guys to pitch much or, you know, I, I would say the same thing in 162 game season. It's just that the schedule hasn't mixed up yet. So um, to me, it was, it was difficult to even, Fine. I couldn't even count on Walker Bueller, and he didn't go five innings to go five innings. So I think that if there's anything, it's early on, you know, going with a lesser pitcher, but someone who at least feels going to go five innings. And uh, last night, Josh Lindblom was taken in over 50% of the, uh, the Tau teams. He went out and got hurt. Um, no, well, I mean, he left, left the game. So that was kind of a bummer for most of us. But, um, you know, he was one of the players that I saw a blurb and said, we'll have no, we'll have no early season restrictions. Okay. He's on my lineup. So I think that's the difference is early on. I want pitching that I feel will go five and get a chance for the win. Could be easier said than done. They eh? depending on the day, right? I mean, the way things cycle that once we get the ones and twos going again, or the, a lot of ones and twos going, uh, they, they will, there'll be a few to choose from. So it's going to depend on the day. And with all the goofiness with the early schedule, we're starting to get a little bit mixing up. Now we talked a lot, you know, early in the season, one of the things, you know, does the number one pitcher always face the number one pitcher? And by the end of the 162 game season, it's completely messed up. Whether or not that happens in 60 games or not, I don't know. So maybe there is, maybe there would have been something to finding a really good number three on a team Maybe he does have a better chance to pick up some wins against, you know, against all these other uh, te- uh, teams whose number three isn't so good. I'm trying to, th- I, I'm not. Maybe, maybe, maybe that'll be Cleveland, right? Maybe, maybe the with with, with Bieber and 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 Clevenger. Maybe, maybe Aaron Savali would have been even more attracting Carlos Carrasco, just because they're better. They're better threes and fours than other teams, and normally that wouldn't matter. But maybe this year it matters. Maybe this year it matters. That could be the motto for the whole season. Oh, I think we're gonna, and, but we're not gonna know till afterwards. I th- I suspect <laughs> it was, it's yep. easy for us to sit here and say, well, because this is like this and this is like that, then what we have to do is this or that. And uh, you know, it's like the best laid plans of mice and men kind of situation where it all makes sense while you're thinking about it in the abstract, and then a lot of it doesn't work out when they actually get out on the field and start throwing the ball around because there's a lot of there's just a lot of variation in a lot of this kind of stuff, and uh, especially on a short run like a game-to-game basis in DFS or a, or even the full season with only 60 games, I think we're just going to have to accept that the amount of volatility and variation in baseball is going to be amplified 
but we don't know exactly how, and we don't know exactly when, which means, right. you know, uh, maybe we just have to play like we would play and, and, uh, and just accept what happens if it doesn't work out. And it, exactly. And because of the variance, even you said, we're not going to know until the end. And even at the end, just be, you know, we're still not going to know if that's the way it is or if there was so much variance. So there's just so many things that I'm just, you know, I, I want the season to play out because I want to see, you know, for instance, in the NFBC, was the, was the right strategy paying for saves or, you know, but in, in a short season, what things, what things stayed consistent with a regular 162 game season and what things, you know, were different. And therefore it's just something you should do regardless or is it season dependent? The one thing I'm, you know, to get off topic a little bit, the, the, the one thing I'm very curious about, because it didn't come up when we talked pitching earlier, and maybe I should have found a way to sneak it in. I think the market did not adjust nearly enough for the uh, NL pitchers facing the DH. I don't think that the adjustments were nearly as as, as steep as they should have been. Um, and on, on an individual pitcher-by-pitcher pitcher basis, there's going to be NL guys that have a higher ERA, lower ERA, et cetera. But over 60 games, we'll know the league-wide effect will be will be able to tell. Like I did some looking at uh, 60 game stretches, AL versus NL in previous years. In over 60 games, we'll know in the aggregate how much the, the DH affected NL pitching. We just can't look. You know, you can't just say, "Oh, you were wrong, Zola. Uh, Degrom wasn't affected," or. Or, or something like that. So uh, that's that's one of the things. I think that is a, a takeaway that can help us next year if the DH stays, is we'll have a better idea of the adjustment necessary. And as you said, I, I think there's going to be some coloration of those data because of the unbalanced schedules. You did a lot of work at Rotowire in the weeks running up to the uh, start mm. of this shortened season in, uh, late in July, and you looked at the fact and uh, I actually had Chris Olson from BaseballHQ.com on earlier on a podcast uh, and he had done an analysis of the effects of the unbalanced schedule much as you had done and pointing out that for a lot of guys you still might be better off with a National League pitcher depending on which division he was in because of the advantage that he had bigger ballparks, the National League West, for instance, if you eliminate Colorado, there's some pretty big ballparks out there. Those kind of factors w were, again, amplified because of the shortness of the season. In 162 games, they balance out much more evenly, but when you're focused in on these this very short season and eliminating a lot of ballparks from any pitcher having to set foot in them, then there are these kind of effects, sort of compounding on effects. Yes, it, it's true. But the other one of this little, little hard to explain, but um, park factor, the shorter the season, the less park factors matter, the more the noise within what can happen uh, matters. So, yeah, you have to you, you do the numbers, you do the numbers of park factors. But it's, it's to me, it's still it's it's quality of the competition that is the biggest factor. Uh, and that also changes the, the, the in, in, in in you know division in the ge geographical schedule, if you will. The quality of competition within the three different regions was different. But yeah, you factor in the park factors. But the easiest way to explain the park factor, and maybe people get it, maybe they don't. But in a one-game basis, uh, I mean, the park matters, but it it's at it, it, the extremes, sure. 
Colorado in, in one extreme and San Francisco in the other. But on a one-game basis, the, the park isn't the biggest factor at all. In a 162-game basis, it becomes more of a factor. So as you as you go on that scale from 1 to 162, it gets increasingly more important. And 60 isn't quite halfway. So the point being, it just it's it's important, but variance is still going to overpower a lot of the, you know, these park. Some of the 30-game park factors are going to be way different than how the park has played the past three years. Uh, it's the, but the, the quality of competition, but yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I love, I love the Texas pitching. Um, they, 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 this year, I liked it anyway, but just due to the schedule and, and some of the nuances of it, the Texas pitchers got a lot better and the, uh, the diamondback batters got a lot worse because of the, uh, the way the parks worked out. And in some cases it's because in, in, in within a division, one team's going to Colorado seven times, one team's going six, one team's going five, and one team's going four. So just the, the pure amount of games you get to go to Colorado was going to change a ton of, you know, change the expectations significantly. And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of quality of opposition, especially in the aggregate. Uh, Chris yeah. Olson's research and yours both pointed to the fact that the central geographical region teams uh, have a certain real strong advantage where their pitching is concerned because they get to face Kansas City and and Detroit and, Detroit, and teams yeah. like that. Yeah. And and conversely, you know, those those teams also tend to have poor pitching. So now all of a sudden you're really more interested in Minnesota hitters, White Sox hitters, Cleveland hitters, and so forth. Again, uh, to repeat myself, but there are factors that compound in favor of or against certain players, certain teams. But at the same time, there are factors that decompound them because of just because of variability. Right, and again, it kind of alluded to it earlier. When you know, then then it's going to be how to when we go to make projections next year. How do we deconstruct? Because uh, you're facing the same teams more often. This that you know usually it usually works out over 162, even though the schedule isn't air quote balanced. Your the strength of opponent, et cetera, it kind of evens out. So you can just look, you can take the numbers, the skills at face value. I don't know if we can take the skills at face value uh, in, in harder and different divisions. There may need to be some kind of a, a normalizing factor based upon the divisions you are in to get, you know, to normalize the statistics, to, to, to new, I don't say normalize, to neutralize the numbers. Because when you do numbers, you, you take what the players did in the context and you neutralize them. You bring them to what would have happened in a neutral environment. And I think that we may need to do something about that. I don't know that you can just strictly take use parks and get it. I think you may have to have an, a, a divisional uh, factor and it may not, we might not even know it because if, if, if that's going to depend upon who gets hurt and who, who's misses time and, and, and stuff like that. So even though we thought we knew the strength of divisions, we, we may not know how it plays out, but we won't know how it plays out until the end when we see all the injuries and the, uh, and the COVID-19 related uh, layoffs. And of course, uh, we're all more than a little bit concerned. We've had one serious team level outbreak of the virus and the, the need for suspending games in Miami. Mm. It's not beyond the realm of imagination to think that this could happen again. We don't know how the Miami uh, clubhouse was so badly affected and so quickly affected. Um, presumably somebody got in there who was outside the bubble or they're not doing enough to control access to the team or letting players in and out or these kinds of things. 
And it's the kind of situation, Todd, it seems to me, could easily be repeated. These guys are young men. They like to go out and have fun. You know, some, they have families. In some cases, they want to go see their families and their kids and blah, 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 blah. I, I'm not saying I think it's going to happen, but it won't surprise me at all if we get another news flash that says, oh, now, you know, Cleveland's going to be suspended for six games or something like that, and their games are going to have to be pushed down to the end of the season or double headers or something because now, you know, 12 guys in the Cleveland clubhouse are uh, affected by the virus. Yeah, of course, you know, what we're hoping the other, the other narrative is, okay, it happened. Now teams know it can happen, and they're extra careful. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's somewhat speculation. I don't like to speculate, but you, you alluded to what the stories are out there that a couple of the, the, the Marlins players went out in Atlanta and I believe there was a rain delay soon thereafter. And the players all went, you know, they didn't socially distance back in the dugout when they, when they gathered for the rain delay. But having said that, um, you know, we're seeing home run celebrate. I mean, we're seeing, we're not seeing we're not seeing good behavior. I don't, that sounds better. You know, we're not seeing people do what they're supposed to be doing, uh, you know, to celebrate, you know, we're seeing a lot of close contact, not just because of the rain delay in a dugout. So um, yeah, it's, it's just probably a confluence of a couple of, of, of unfortunate scenarios. And if it's a wake up call, maybe we get the game, maybe we get the seasons in, but yeah, so much, so much can go wrong that, you know, like I said earlier, Every day, you know, I'm happy to watch baseball every day from a professional standpoint. That means I got paid from a personal standpoint. I mean, I got to watch the games, but I know it's fleeting. I know it can go away tomorrow. Yeah, and I think the if anything positive comes out of this Miami situation, it will be that it serves as a wake-up call to everybody else in baseball to think, you know, we're not as invulnerable as we think because we've got these safeguards in place because the safeguard is in any circumstance only as strong as its weakest link. Yeah, and if it serves as a if it serves as a note for other sports, you know, that's another thing too, but yeah, I mean You'd like to think, you know, the whole wake-up call thing. I mean, you think every time I go on a scale, it would be a wake-up call, but there I go again out and eating things I don't eat. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see if, the, if it does serve as a wake-up call to these, to these players and um, knock on wood it will for, for both our personal and professional sakes. Indeed. Uh, there's nothing like watching some baseball with a beer in one hand and uh, your feet up in your uh, roster lineups in the other hand. <laughs> it's so much fun. I missed it so much between uh, April and June. I was surprised how much it bothered me not to have baseball to watch during the summertime. So right. uh, while I've got it, I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, I hope that my teams improve. I think that they should because, uh, you know, there's been a lot of underperformance, but no matter what happens, the point is to have fun and stay safe. Todd, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, we'll talk to you again during the season, I'm sure. Looking forward to it, PD. Todd Zola appears regularly on Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, Hey Taxi, and Extra Innings, next on Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's Hey Taxi, 
a commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball's extended rosters and who might get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at another source of help hiding on those expanded rosters is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey, Taxi! Beep beep. What do you think of Michael King? Maybe it's too early to call him the king of New York, don't judge, but 25-year-old Michael King's reputation certainly precedes him among baseball's insiders. In fact, Michael King quietly ranks second among all minor league pitchers in the ERA in 2018. That's right, Michael King quietly posted a 179 ERA in 161 innings in 2018 while traversing three levels of the minors. Michael King started his 2018 campaign at Class A Advanced Tampa and finished 2018 as the AAA International League's Pitcher of the Month for August after his August 4th promotion, going 3-0 with a 109 ERA in five August starts. Slowed by a stress fracture in 2019 that kept him sidelined until July, Michael King's 44 strikeouts in 46 innings were sufficient to give him a taste of New York as a September call-up. Although it's currently unclear if Michael King will become a permanent fixture of the Yankees' rotation in the abbreviated 2020 season, he may still retain value as a precision spot starter or garnering wins as a second man in long reliever. So hey taxi, beep beep, meter's running, Michael King is waiting, pick him up! For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about some interesting ideas from the master. Last week at BaseballHQ.com, Ron Chandler wrote a rotisserie column titled Looking Beyond Our Illegitimate Season. In it, he suggested that this shortened season actually offers some opportunities for the lords of the realm to, and I quote, take a different perspective and embrace the world as it is now. The traditional game had a great 144-year run, Ron said, but now it's time to move on. It would be nice if the pandemic has the sole redeeming quality of forcing us to see things differently, sparking change. I'd like to take a few minutes here to respond to some of Ron's suggestions and maybe offer some of my own. His first idea deals with the marathon season. Ron proposes to split the six-month baseball season into three blocks, essentially 50-game mini-seasons separated by off-weeks. He doesn't say so, but one of the off-weeks could easily be devoted to the All-Star game and its related hullabaloo. Ron's idea is that each division's block winner would get a playoff spot, plus there'd be a wildcard team which had the best overall record across all three mini-seasons. Teams that win multiple blocks get playoff buys. I could go along with this. I like the idea of what amounts to pennant chase baseball all the time, which is what Ron called it. I might even add a tweak of my own. Make the middle block an all-travel block, that is, all games played outside the division with the other two blocks inside the division only, which shorten up on the travel time might be a great idea. I'd also make the three blocks 54 games each, so the full season ended up with 162, like it is now. That'd help settle down all the grumps who think it's impossible to compare players over different length seasons, though they never call for a return to the 154-game schedule used before 1962. 
And to make the seasons even shorter, I think they should have day-night doubleheaders every Saturday. A game at noon, everybody leaves. A game at 7, everybody comes back, and we have two games. That would shorten the season immensely. I also think this three-mini-season format would be awesome for fantasy, even if MLB doesn't adopt it. Three drafts, three pennant races, maybe come up with a handful of keepers, aggregated scoring, count me in. My concern, however, would be that the playoffs could be, well, somewhat oversubscribed. Think about it, if a different team won every division in each block, that'd be nine teams plus a wild card in each league. 20 out of 30 teams in the playoffs? What is this, the NBA? The next issue Ron discussed was game length. One idea he had was seven-inning games, and I have to say, I don't like that one, and I don't think it'll fly. The purists will go mental with what amounts to a 22% decrease in the number of innings played, which is a little more than 36 games worth of season per team. And the advertisers, regional sports networks, national networks, they're not going to be too enthusiastic either. Ron goes on to say that the issue might not be game length per se, but the fact that so little happens during the average game. And he's right. Three true outcomes. Walk, strikeout, strikeout, walk. Every so often a home run. Nothing is happening out there. Joe Sheehan first started talking about this years ago. The base hit single is vanishing from the game. In 1979, teams combined for about 13 singles per game, maybe a homer and a half, and 10 strikeouts. Fast forward to 2019, we have less than 11 singles per game, down more than 15%. We have almost three home runs, up 70% from 1979, and a whopping 17.6 strikeouts per game. That's 85% more in just 20 years. One-third of all the outs in every game are strikeouts. That just sucks on general principles. And strikeouts also take longer, what with all the fouling off and stepping out and licking fingers and walking around the mound. What we don't see is rallies, that exciting station-to-station baseball like Whitey Herzog's Cardinals used to play. You have nine innings full of singles, steals, hit and runs, first to third, second to home, maybe the odd triple or double. Nobody will complain about three hours and ten minutes of that kind of real action. Now, I don't know how MLB is going to make the game exciting again that way, but I do have one suggestion. They could take the Titleist Pro V1X out of the core of the baseball. Might be a start. In the meantime, I do have a concrete idea for how they could shorten games. Change the ads. Don't get rid of them, just move them. Currently, the ad blocks in any game are about two minutes per half inning for non-nationally broadcast games and two and a half minutes for national games. By the time the game is back on, it typically takes another 20 to 30 seconds for the players to actually get ready and start playing. There have been tweaks to shorten that two and a half to three and a half minute stoppage per half inning by a couple of minutes, like players are supposed to be ready before the break ends so that when they get back on TV, the first pitch is right away. It doesn't happen. We all know that. What's really needed is just to shorten the gap, period. It should take about a minute to change out the players and let the pitcher throw his eight warm-ups. The issue here is that Major League Baseball can't change the rules about the length of breaks unilaterally because of broadcast contracts, and the broadcasters are not interested in giving up a lot of inventory after paying billions for those minutes in their contracts. So, my idea, and I hate to say it, put the ads into the games. We already hear announcers now and again doing live reads of ads and local broadcasts in the short breaks right between pitches. 
And I can say in Canadian broadcast of Blue Jays games, we also get little 10-second TV mini-ads for hardware chains and car companies. We're also seeing some split screening, with the ad and sound playing in a screen window, while the game continues silently on another window. By adroitly timing these ads, it could mean missing nothing of consequence. Launch the ad window right after a pitch, it usually takes at least 15 seconds. Why couldn't there be more of that to take the place of current between innings ads? If they could cut the current two and a half minute breaks to a minute and 15 seconds, that would be about 20 minutes per game cut out. That would be good. Ron also talks about the changing roles of players, especially pitchers and defenders, and that's all really interesting as well and fun to talk about. Unfortunately, I'm out of time, but you should check it out. It's at BaseballHQ.com, and it's a free article, so check it out. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. We have extra innings here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 31st. Thanks for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Todd Zola, from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Todd is a longtime guest on our podcast and a good friend of the show and me as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our Hey Taxi commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes. They're all working wherever you catch your pods. Please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring... The wise guy of fantasy baseball, it's Gene McCaffrey. Next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.